Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. And Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association, is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org slash Project Power. You can avoid the risk of type 2. Project Power will help. How about we heat things up tonight? Mm, how so? Get a little fresh, add some steam, sizzle and spice. <laughs> Wait, you're talking about going to Outback again, aren't you? Fire things up at Outback Steakhouse. For a limited time, try our Bloomin' Fried Shrimp. Or get fresh with our new strawberry salad. Go big with our bone-in ribeye. Or the filet and grilled shrimp on the barbie. Then cool off with a cucumber crush or peanut koala. Try them all before they're gone. Let's Outback. And this is our bi-monthly kind of newscast where we go over the news and uh, hopefully you'll find it entertaining and informative. Yeah, we got a lot we got a lot of things to get into too, but before that, man, what's what's been going on with you? We haven't talked in what's it been a couple months now? Yeah, it's been a while. I you know what? I think my time has been pretty similar on a regular basis, just because I do the same things. It's like I train people live virtually, which I've been doing, uh, running my other business and then, uh, doing my podcasts. It's like the, th- the three for all the time, you know? Yeah. Busy, busy guy. You've been cranking these podcasts out too, man. I've been seeing a lot of them come through. I haven't <laughs> been able to, haven't been able to make enough time to listen to all of them. Like my life depends on it. I swear you, you think this was a big organization, big, massive production team doing all this stuff, but it's just me. And, uh, I'm actually very proud of this week's uh, episodes. I'm releasing five this week. And they're all on about the Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. So it's the book that was written by uh, international journalists and four men who are serving death sentences on death row currently right now. So they all called in from death row and we had a separate uh, conversation. So I'm releasing those this week. Awesome. Is that that has to be up the, towards the top of of some of the the favorite ones you've done? I'd imagine. Yeah, because it was heavy. It was really like just the whole process of, you know, we were working through Tessie, who was the lead author and the journalist, to get the guys scheduled, make sure that we could talk to them when it wasn't locked down, um, and then you know their calls are fifteen minutes long, and then the phone hangs up. So you hear on the episode will say sixty seconds left, thirty seconds left. So it's just kind of like, okay, let's get this in, you know, type of thing, you know. Man, that's crazy. I saw, did you talk to the Innocence Project guys too? No. No? no, I, no. I, was list, I was listening to them the other day, man. Some of the stories uh, from the folks that were wrongfully convicted and had to go through pretty much hell and back to overturn wrongful convictions where, mm-hmm. you know, there's these prosecutors who have a vested interest in keeping this person in jail and, you know, not retrying cases and hiding evidence. And it's just crazy to hear about. And the fact that that, you know, that goes on today and our justice system is kind of eye-opening. It is eye-opening. And, you know, for me with these guys, I wanted to focus on how they, 
how they the creation of the book and how they met Tessie and that whole relationship, and then get an idea of what was their existence like on death row. And um, I think if you listen to it, you're gonna you're gonna hear some of the most incredibly intelligent people you've ever heard in your life calling in from death row. Um, extremely eloquent. It's um, it will change how you think if you're thinking differently about this. I would imagine. Yeah, Man, that's what I appreciate about your podcast too. Is just the kind of wide array of guests. So it's like you know, one week to the next, you have like a like a sex therapist versus yeah. you know, people on death row. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the, the, the best of both worlds. There, you know. I had a lady on to it. You know, it's on Netflix. They have this uh, episode called uh, Unwell, or the show called Unwell. It's very interesting. But one of the episodes is on bee sting therapy. And I was proud of myself. I was like, oh, I've done that already. I've already talked to somebody who's doing that. Like many months ago, we had that on. You know? Wait, wait. Bee, what is that? What is bee sting therapy? Oh, boy. Um, so it's usually people who do it usually have Lyme disease. And it's thought to help with the treatment for Lyme disease. So basically, you take um, bees and you put them purposely on the area that you that you're feeling like you need treatment and the bee stings you and it's supposed to because of the 63 chemicals components in there and primarily melatonin is supposed to have some uh alleviation of symptoms element it's it's controversial because there's people who swear by it and then there a lot of scientists who are like this is not this isn't true this doesn't work type of thing you know wait is are these wasps or bees because don't bees die after they sting Yes. And so then there's an ethical dilemma of like, you're purposely killing bees who, you know, if you, and then, you know, we have a dwindling, dwindling bee population apparently on some level. So it's controversial on many levels, but the lady I talked to, Samantha Calvert, I think is episode 87. She, she said she did it, but she had a hard time continuing it because it was too painful to keep doing. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine too, if you're allergic to it and you just don't yeah, know. Yeah, anaphylaxis. Yeah. Oh man. Like I'm allergic to peanuts and I've never, thank God, knock on wood, haven't been through anaphylactic mm-hmm. shock uh, yet. Let me throw in the yet because it could still yeah. happen. But that's scary. I mean, it scares the shit out of me, man. I think it's controversial. A lot of these things, I can sympathize with people who are like desperate because they just want to be well. And so when you're you're not feeling good chronically, you'll often do anything to try to be well. I, I can I can understand that, but um it's all there's also a controversial nature to it. I mean you know you run a news organization. You're 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 like literally bombasted with stuff that's like all over the place. Wait, you know there's controversies in the world you don't say I didn't know that. <laughs> and I hopeful like when people my goal with this as we do this bi monthly is that people will see two very fair-minded, reasonably-minded people talking about the news instead of the, as you know, the one-sided conversation about things. Yeah, the talking heads where, and especially in broadcast TV, right, it just never gets to a place where it's actually meaningful, I think, for the viewer to learn about stuff because it doesn't get more than surface level, right? You got, you know, three or four people on a panel talking over each other for a five-minute slot. It's like, what the hell can you actually really get into in that time period? It's like, you you just can't. So that's that's part of my frustration with just kind of news in general and you know why I launched the donut. Clearly. And and by the way, before we jump in, I I can't say this enough. I love the donut. I've sent it to so many people. My wife has sent it to all of her friends. They all subscribe to it now. 
and uh, it's very successful in my mind. So thank you for bringing that to the forefront. No, I appreciate that, man. Thank you for that. And uh, maybe we can get into it later too, but we got some some pretty big changes coming that I'm super excited about before uh, before the end of the month. Yeah, let's do that. Let's save that towards the end on the sign-off here and um, and chat about it. But speaking of controversy, let's jump into what everybody's talking about besides coronavirus and racial injustice, but the election, which is barreling down upon us very soon. Less than 80 days. Less than 80 days. Um, but yeah, where do you want to start? I mean, we can Well, do- let's specifically talk about the polling, because I think uh, for the public... Um, maybe there's some trepidation related to polling in the sense of like, as you know, in 2016, a lot of people were like, was this, were these polls right? What was the exit polling and all that? So maybe shed some light a little bit, your thoughts about polling and where that is in our current state of things. Yeah, so for sure. So just to set the record straight on 2016 too, it's not necessarily that the polls were off. It was just the focus was a little misdirected. So most people were focused on the national polling, right? Like overall national polling, but the way a president can get elected by the electoral college was kind of thrown by the wayside. So everybody's focused on Hillary Clinton leading in the national polling, but not focused enough on these battleground states or these um, electoral states that ended up switching that gave Trump the election in, in 2016. So now there's a whole ton of focus shifting from like the just general overarching national polls to battleground states. So to give you an idea of like the battleground states this year, it'd be like a Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. Our six I see tossed about a lot. Um, and I actually just pulled up real clear politics polling average in these battleground states. And they have Biden leading by 4.3 points. So he's up 48.7 to Trump's 44.4. And that's actually narrowed over the past couple of weeks too. So Biden's had a, a pretty wide lead for a while. And for whatever reason, over the past month or over the past few weeks, that gap started to, to narrow both on the battleground states and on the national level too. Do you think that a narrowing of that lead is because of factors such as peop- as people get closer to the election, they may want to play it safer with their picks or they're like, you know... Maybe I was thinking of different option, but I'm just going to stay, go default with what I'm thinking. Or what are you thinking on that element there? I mean, it's it's so hard to tell, too, because I, I think polling is an inexact science in the, the fact that it's a snapshot at a point in time. It doesn't necessarily, it's like these polls today don't necessarily mean that Biden's going to win the election, right? They don't necessarily mean Trump's going to win the election. It's just to capture a gauge of public sentiment, like literally at this point in time right now. And there's just, I mean, there's so many factors too that can contribute to it, right? From coronavirus stuff to, uh, you know, protests to Biden gaffes to Trump gaffes to the USPS stuff to stimulus bill, right? Like China, there's literally so much going on that it's kind of hard to pin down exactly why uh, the polls seem to be shifting. And also, just to kind of toss it out there too, a lot of these shifts are within the margin of error of polls, which is typically anywhere from like two to five percentage points anyways. Uh, So again, it's a a very inexact science. And I think to just trust the polls implicitly is wrong, but they do serve a useful purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, do you have an idea of like how that actually works? Because I don't think I have a very good idea. It's like, I have never participated in any of these polls, or is it a phone call? How was that actually done? 
That's a great question because it's it's kind of morphed over the past few years. I actually had to look into this because we, when we're rolling out uh, our mobile app or putting our mobile app on our product roadmap, part of our monetization strategy was like polling stuff. So I had to do a pretty deep dive into the industry, and you'll see a lot of the legacy poll makers still doing uh, like the the phone banks. It's so like picture. Uh, one of those call centers where you just got hundreds of people picking up the phone and dialing through these lists to landlines typically, because now they've changed a lot of the rules around calling uh, like from call centers to cell phones with the FCC and the robocalls and, and all that stuff. So that's morphed a little bit. And then as you'd expect to, and you know, the information age and 21st century, a lot of that shifted online as well. So in place of like where you see the tabula or the live intent, uh, like programmatic ads, you know, like when you pop on a website, you see like the banner ads or the ones on the side of the website. Right. They do that sort of stuff too. Hmm. Yeah. I always wonder, like when I see the polls, I go, I've never done this. Like, where's my opinion? On this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever asked me what I'm like. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, and again, too, the, the types of people that have the time to just sit and answer polls are probably not the folks that are doing, you know, three things simultaneously, like, you know, you, you or I are, and it's not to yeah. disparage anybody taking polls, but also at the same time, I'm like you, I, I talk to a whole ton of people and I still haven't encountered a single one that's been like, yeah, I was part of that poll. Uh, so it's, yeah. it, I don't know, these mystery people, and maybe they're just making up numbers. Who, you know, <laughs> well, I just wonder like, so now you got me thinking, how much time does it actually take to participate in one of these polls for presidential polling? They have, I mean, they'll run, because they'll show you uh, in the poll results when they were actually capturing responses from, and it'll depend on the poll too. Like sometimes it's over three days, sometimes it's over a week, sometimes it's over a couple week period. Uh, for a lot of like annual reports and stuff uh, for industry, like industry reports, like a Statista or a McKinsey will do. That will be done over months and months and months, but their sample size they're looking at is like hundreds of thousands versus normal polls, which are just, you know, a couple thousand, sometimes even 500 people. And I've also even seen polls as low as a hundred people, but mm. you have to toss a data analyst and do some data science work into that to make sure the methodology is sound and you're actually getting a full representation of the, the population you're trying to, to get answers from. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So would you say that if if you want to have at least maybe the best possible idea of what may be going on is to look at the battleground states uh, primarily because a lot of these other states are fairly foregone conclusions like California and things of that nature for different candidates or Mississippi, you know what I mean, things like that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of where our focus is. So we just pretty much focus a lot on the battleground states because, again, we don't want to make the same mistake that everybody made in 2016. We're all we're focused on is the national poll and the popular vote and kind of discount the electoral college. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I can sense like when I the, – the news that I do look through, which was through, your, through the donut, honestly looking at it, <laughs> is I could – it seems like there is more of an emphasis on battleground states – now, how is this and shifting? How is this moving? Let's talk about mail-in ballots. You know, this has become a very huge topic, in in the whole deal. What's the huge controversy that uh, maybe it's just being being put out there on a general scale with people? Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to to go on here too. I think the general idea has to do a lot with the scale 
at which this mm. is trying to be executed. So you're, you know, you're a business owner, right? You know how, yes. how difficult it is to scale stuff, how that takes time. It takes money. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes along the way. So trying to scale from, just to give you an idea of, of context, right? Because I'm always like, let's root ourselves empirically in some numbers. So in 2016, 33 million votes were cast by mail or absentee ballots. That's like a quarter of the electorate. And some conservative estimates I've seen this year show about 50% of all votes being cast by mail-in ballot or absentee ballot. So doubling the capacity of the system that we know is already contributing to election delays and a whole ton of legal challenges. Like in, um, like in New York, there's a couple districts that have taken weeks uh, to actually figure out the results and you know count all of the ballots. And at the same time, like one in five of those ballots are being invalidated too, for you know a, a wide variety of reasons, from forgetting to sign in all the right places to signatures mismatching to ballots even arriving too late. Um, so I think part of the concern as well, too, is uh, trying to scale that up and literally double the postal system's capacity with 80 days, less than 80 days left to go before the election with all of the issues that come alongside that and the delays we've seen and legal challenges we've seen. I see a lot of concern from people I talk to on both sides about the ability to actually execute that. Um and I know you've probably heard a lot on the the right about the the transfer fraud, right? The left saying yeah. that you know this is a, a pretty proven system. There's no fraud. Well, there's truth to both. You know what I mean? It's like sure, there's no widespread evidence of mail-in voting fraud going on now, but we've also not tried to scale the postal system to the capacity it needs to be scaled in the next eighty days. So when that ends up happening, I'm sure. Right, it's reasonable to assume that stuff will fall through the cracks and kind of fall by the wayside just with all of the moving parts and trying to get everything done, like a sprint to get everything done uh, before the election day. So again, I, I see validity to, to both sides. And it's just one of those situations where I've been saying this for a while, man. It's like, I don't envy these people in power, like literally at all, because the, the decisions that have to be made are they're tough decisions, man. They're tough ones. And for somebody like myself that can see merit to a lot of different things, it's tough to narrow those down, especially when people's lives are at risk, you know? Yeah, certainly. And it makes me, so should we be, and I'm thinking this, but I I wonder out loud about it. Should, should the American public basically be prepared for um, a lengthened result of the presidential election or other elections, Senate elections, all these things, House elections, should we prepare to not have a, a winner on election night? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's pretty much a. I would say it's pretty much a guarantee at this point. Guarantee, um, yeah, yeah. It's. It, I mean, whether it's going to be a week, whether it's going to be a month, like I just, I don't even really know because there's also a concern that I've been reading about votes not being counted by the time the elector, like the electors, the state electors have to cast their votes, mm-hmm. which I think is like December 8th or December. Don't quote me on that. It's like sometime in December, but that would be a month or so after the election. And in a dist- in a single district in New York, it's six weeks post-election and they still haven't counted all the ballots. Right. And that's literally just one district within one state. And now imagine doing that across 50 states and hundreds <laughs> of millions of people. Sounds messy, honestly. It sounds like it's just going to be a mess. And I, I thought I heard that by the time the first presidential debate happens, like late September, that 16 states will already have had mail-in voting. 
Right? Yeah, or, eight, I mean, like, yeah, it's like, eight million people. Work? Eight yeah, million so like there are already votes cast before that yeah. many people. Yeah. What's, what was interesting about that too, I'm glad you brought that up, is uh, Giuliani actually sent a letter to the debate commission asking either for a fourth debate or for the last debate at the end of October to be moved to early September because of that exact reason. Uh, but what the commission came back and said was, we're not going to move the debates. These are pretty much set in stone. The reason being is we believe those 8 million people that are casting votes before the first debate already have their minds made up. So anything that goes on in the debates is not going to you know, change the minds of people who are casting their votes in early September. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's like 8 million by the first debate, something like 16 million by the second, 30 million, so on and so forth. So it's it's really interesting because to me, the debates are where a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for both candidates at the debates, a lot of them. Certainly, you're getting that, you're seeing them both together and how they interact and respond to different things. It's, it's interesting though, I feel like when I was growing up and when I was a much younger adult, that that was the only time I heard from the candidates like a lot of things. But because of the internet and social media, you hear about from what candidates think and feel constantly on a regular basis. So it's almost like when you get to the debates, you've heard so much already. And then it's potentially be coming down to how do you feel like this, this almost like a boxing match, you know, like (laughs) who's going to sling the most barbs at each other. It's actually kind of sad to me. Like what's devolved into is people just talk poorly about each other generally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the surprising thing about that, um, because I'm with you, man, it's like the, the vitriol and the divisiveness that we've encountered over the past 30 years, it's gone in the wrong direction. Uh, But sometimes a lot of things I have to remind myself of is that's been in existence pretty much ever since politics was started. Like if you go back to the the 1700s and you read some of the publications, like they're literally publications that are taking sides, right? Like a Fox News and a CNN, but in seven or 18th century format where they're just lambasting the other candidate and the other side's giving it right back as good as it's getting. Right. right? And it's just like, this goes back a, a while and do you think it has something to do? Because this is, I've been doing a lot of, of thinking about that. Do you think it has something to do with our inherent nature for kind of like tribalism or negative emotions eliciting stronger reactions than positive ones? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a lot to do with power in the sense of what happens when you give people a platform, a stage. And uh, I think that there's a sense that when you, when you get on, I was called like that with anybody, like, you know, you can get on stage with anybody, depending on if you feel like you got an audience and you kind of become this larger version of yourself than you may normally be with when there's no crowd around for that. I think that also comes from, and you know, you're, you're an athlete like, like myself, you know, the whole term, like it's what you do when nobody's watching. And I often wonder that with candidates so much is like, is this person the same person when they're by themselves in their home and they're interacting or with their family? Or is this a persona? Is this like a, are they like in wrestling? Are they the heel or the baby face? You know, like, and all, that's why I compared to kind of wrestling and all that stuff, because it feels like, how do I know if I'm getting the actual person? If I'm just, is Trump the heel and Biden's the baby face? Or, baby, you know, it's like, are these characters in a TV show? Or they are this who they actually are, and I think the public gets pulled into 
this uh, this song and dance because you, I I don't know like I and that makes it also very difficult to I think sometimes decide what's the right choice and dealing with policies and things that have to do with real people I, I it's difficult you know yeah, well my my blanket policy is I never trust politicians. Um, based on what, <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, sure. Like it's a running joke, right? Like politicians lie to you. They'll say whatever they want to, to, to be yeah. reelected. So my focus is typically on getting like, what have they done? Right. Like the, mm-hmm. the focus now seems to be on style over substance, right? Like somebody looks good. They present themselves the correct way. Yeah. They talk the right way. Well, they must be, you know, the, the presentable family person that they make themselves into. And then inevitably, like a scandal comes out in the next five to 10 years and surprise, you know, they're not all that clean. So I just always make it just a, a blanket policy myself to never trust what people say, but kind of focus on what they're doing. Um, Cause I'm with you. Like that frustrates me. The fact that it seems our politicians have been made into celebrities and yeah, I'm, I'm not a major fan of that. Cause just like most celebrities, uh, a lot of times they just don't have your best interests at heart. And those are the people that are supposed to represent you and get stuff done but the incentive structure is pretty much incentivized for getting nothing done. Because if you don't get anything done, then you can blame the other side for obstruction. And the other side doesn't have anything to you know, say, oh my gosh, they did this. Look at what that policy actually ended up yeah. being. Right? So it's like the incentive is literally to get nothing done so you can be reelected. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that too, man. It's a, it's a strange existence that we've created with this. And now it's become so polarized with polling, you know, mail-in ballots, what are the trends? I wonder what, where this is all leading to, you know, we're in a, what feels like a very tenuous time. And what do you think the, the fallout may be on either side? Because I think it's important to present what may be, it's just hypothetical on either side. The fallout may be from either person getting elected or reelected. And that's what that honestly, man, that scares the shit out of me. It it really yeah. does because I I do think there's a very real chance that the country could fracture uh, over this election. I really do because no matter what, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Both sides are going to going to claim foul or cry foul, regardless of what the results are. Right? Like if if Trump ends up winning. Well, the, the Democrats are going to say it had something to do with him trying to defund the Postal Service or Russia helped him or something yeah. like that. And then on the flip side, Trump's going to say fraud, you know, so it's like both sides have already kind of positioned themselves to present excuses or like solidify their claim on power. And especially in such a close, contentious election where we're voting in a different way than we really ever have before, it scares the shit out of me. Like it, it truly does, because as you mentioned earlier, we're not going to get results day of. We're going to get these results rolling in, you know, for weeks. And uh, I forget what I forget what election it was. There was one of the the primaries earlier where, after three or four days of counting votes, one candidate was ahead and it looked like uh, they were going to win. But then, as the result, the the votes rolled in over the next week. Right, the tide turned, and then the other candidate was in the lead. So, like, can you imagine that literally at the presidential level, where you have like, it's like racing, right? It's like Biden's in the lead, now Trump's in the lead, now Biden's yeah. in the lead, like just back and forth for weeks after the election. Like, oh my gosh, man, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a mess. It is gonna be a mess. And actually, I was telling my wife, I said maybe the thing to look at too is looking at 
the power and the shift potentially in Congress, um, because what well, you have a majority House Democrat, and then it's uh, Republican currently. But what if that shifts to Democrat, and but Trump gets reelected? So then you have a majority House and Senate Democrat and a Republican president. Nothing's going to get done. <laughs> Literally, nothing's going to get done. Oh, but that's another thing. Then, you know, yeah, go ahead. That doesn't help anybody. Like, how does that? Because then you get gridlocked the entire time, and 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 so if that happens, then those sides will make it their mission for the next four years to make sure that nothing happens for that. Yeah. Well, so I mean, it would be almost a lame thing. You know? <laughs> typically, I like gridlock though, right? Because it, it, it yeah. typically means you need to have a consensus to get stuff done. But in recent years, the bipartisan worker, like they're reaching across the aisle, so to say, that just doesn't happen anymore. Like it just doesn't. And that's no. another thing that frustrates the hell out of me because I'm looking at a country that I think – and this, I believe this in my heart of hearts, is majority reasonable people who all want the same thing. And then you have the vocal minority on both sides that are owning the conversation in the public square. Yeah. And majority of America agrees on a lot of stuff, right? Like our healthcare system is messed up. Polling, da polling data shows majority of Republicans and Democrats agree with that. The problem is we don't agree on how, like the solution, but there's no compromise on the solution. And then that goes for every other thing that, that people agree on needs to be updated. Like infrastructure uh, is another one of those. And then the disagreement is on how do we actually get that stuff done? But as you're, I mean, it, there's just no incentive to get anything done. There's literally not. And again, that's just something that frustrates me because I want to move the country forward. I think we all want to move the country yeah. forward. It needs to be moved forward. But the way everything's set up now, it just doesn't appear like it's going to be unless something changes. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I really don't. I don't either, honestly. I think it's one of the first times where I felt, probably because of the mood I've, obviously I don't have all this data, but just from the mood of people that I know that they feel the balance of the country is, is hanging on this election. I mean, you know, like there are going to be people that they, whatever, whatever happens on what, let's say it goes one side versus the other, they're going to feel like America, as you know, what is done, or they're going to feel like, yes, is super progressive feeling is going to continue to move forward. And you might, you might see a fallout. It's interesting. I have heard more than one person talk about, uh, bring up the term civil war on that. And uh, several of my friends have even mentioned that. And I'm interested in discussion of like, well, what does that mean? Because the only reference for that I know of is the actual civil war. So uh, maybe that's a different version of that in today's thing. What does that mean? You know? And that's interesting to kind of speculate on too, uh, because the way that I could see it playing out. And again, this is just pure speculation, right? And this is what I enjoy is the, the speculation. Yeah, it's great. But, um, so you already kind of see these different economies kind of popping up based on political beliefs, right? So you have some countries that will uh, put out statement, political statements in support of a specific, um, you know, in support of something that is a political matter. And it speaks to a certain side of the political aisle. And then you have same some companies that do that on the other side. 
too, right? Like Goya would be a great example of that, where you have the left boycotting Goya, but the right supporting Goya because the left's boycotting Goya, right? So in that instance, you have people on the left side of the aisle not shopping at this particular company because of the political views of the person at the top of it. And then you have people on the other side shopping at the at the company because of the political views of the person at the top of it. So I can see these kind of like separate economies and separate things popping up, like even social media platforms too, right? That pop up that cater to specific political beliefs. And I, you know, it's not a, a place where I want to live, but I, I don't know if we can't find a way to get along. I, I am scared of, of what may happen. feels almost like, um, maybe this sounds aggressive to sound in, but almost like segregation and social media and different plat. Like, hey, Republicans will be on this platform, Democrats will be on this platform, Independents will primarily be on this social media site. I mean, that's what it sounds like, in the sense of like we will, we will, we will create tribes, political tribes, social interaction tribes. I I don't know how that is a positive thing. At no, all. no, our society, man. You no, know, no, no. But again, and this is one of the things I always have to remind myself of too. So similarly to what I was talking about earlier, it's like every election cycle, you always hear it's like if this side wins, it's the end of the country as we know it, right? And then the narrative on the other side is the exact same, except about the other, you know, the other person. So I remember hearing this with Bush. I remember hearing this with Obama. I remember hearing this with Trump. Right. So to me, it's kind of something I have to step back and try and take a more holistic view of instead of trying to be so like locked in the emotion of coronavirus and quarantine and the politicization of everything and the George Floyd protests and now USPS, the election, right? Like there's just so much stuff that weighs on you mentally. And at least for me, it's caused a lot of emotional reactions. But when I try and take a step back, I'm going, this is an absolutely crazy, unprecedented time. Sure. But what I take some solace in is this seems to be the same story that I've seen play out a few times before, and we've been okay. Granted, we're not going in the, the right direction, I would say, but it, you know, it, I don't know that we wake up tomorrow and then we have these, uh, I, this ideological segregation, even though it does feel like it's heading that way. Well, what's interesting, I feel like, is um, I try to be someone who has a lot of very deep and meaningful friendships with people from very different affiliations from me, because I like that. I've always I've grown up like that. So while I am of of a more independent-minded person uh, politically, you know, I have many friends who are very progressive, liberal-minded. Many friends who are super conservative. And what has been one very common theme is what you said is the direction of things. Um, that has been consistent, at least in the people I have talked to, that there's like, hey, this things aren't moving in the right direction, regardless of how they lean on things, that it doesn't feel that sense of like, yeah, the, we're on the right train track. It feels like we, we've hit that thing and it, and it turned the train tracks to a different alternate route. <laughs> and a lot of people don't like it. Like, I think it's a general feeling, at least in my circles that I can, I talk to, and believe me, I talk to a ton of people <laughs> these days, so... It feels very similar on that mindset. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, I I think we, I mean, we talked to a whole ton of people, both of us. You may be more than I, I mean, I don't even know because my entire day is literally I wake up, I talk to people and, and yeah, that's the same. Yeah. And I, it's just so interesting to me to 
hear people talk about exactly what we're talking about. And it all seems to be the same, right? Like we're all tired of yeah. this shit. We just want to get past yes. it. And to me, it seemed to kind of explode before, like around the 2010-ish, right? Like Facebook and Twitter kind of came yeah. mainstream. Like, do you think that had something to do with it at all or just like accelerated it a little bit? I actually do. And um, it's it's certainly a big topic of conversation I've had with a lot of people, but I think it is it is accelerated people's behavior in a sense. It's not like I think that, oh, people are behaving weirdly because they have social media. I think they've been behaving weirdly. They just didn't have a megaphone for it. It's not like people were like all of a sudden, it's not like people 20 years ago was so normal and we're so you know illogical now. Like, no, 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 there's a lot of craziness that's been going on, except you could, that, could, that was more local, locally based. You didn't have, if somebody was like a fringe candidate, they had no they had no juice zero juice because they really had no way to get out to get that message out and now like if you if you're good enough at doing this stuff you could really build something through social media and the internet so i think the building of the internet you know th- we're basically 30 years into this internet experience from 1990 when it really began to formation of facebook you know, uh, Twitter, all these things. I think they're in, they are themselves not inherently bad, but they have become vehicles for people to become weird versions of themselves for that. So I think so people become like crazier versions of themselves on these things. You know? Well, it's easier when you're not having to, to talk to a human being and you can just hide behind a pro, like a literally a nameless, faceless profile and comment whatever hateful, spiteful stuff that you want to comment with zero repercussions, like absolutely none. Well, that's the problem is there's no, there's no repercussions or accountability. And so what, what really is saddens me, Peter, is uh, I'm a big user of LinkedIn. I like the professional nature of it, but I have noticed that these extremely professional, well-respected people are devolving into very, very, uh, uh, poor use of their time on their very like deeply ideological, hurtful commentary on these sites. And then they get into this snowball of commenting back. It's all processed information. It's not, it's not real connection. When you're doing, you're, somebody pushes send, it goes in there. You don't know really everything, the context, the facial aspect of it. And then you get upset, then you send something else. It becomes a snowball. But what happens is you're feeding the machine. People don't think about that. You're feeding the algorithm when you're arguing, arguing on there. Yeah. Like yeah. you're contributing to the negativity on there. Nobody thinks about it that way. No. And that's, I mean, that's a major message that I wanted to push at the donut. One of the reasons I started the donut is I, I want to promote and just kind of make people aware what the media and politicians are and social media is literally designed to do. They're designed to turn the other side into the enemy to incite mm-hmm. some, a, a negative emotion, right? Because negative emotions are stronger than positive emotions. It's yeah. like fear, disgust, anger. Those are negative emotions. So if you could stoke those negative emotions, make the other side your enemy, right? Like a racist, a Nazi, a mm-hmm. communist, a snowflake, right? Like all of those names meant to call your opponent uh, in an insulting manner because once somebody's a racist or a Nazi, well, 
they don't justify a conversation, right? Somebody's a communist, somebody's a snowflake. They don't justify a conversation anymore. So it devolves into ad hominem attacks where you're attacking people based on like their person instead of their ideas. And if we could just focus on people's ideas, right, and historical and fact-based solutions to the problems we face and try and find a general consensus on how to approach those problems, I feel like the world would be so much better, right? Like we'd have more a, a unified, holistic view of what we're trying to accomplish as a country versus letting ourselves devolve into these ad hominem attacks to this vitriol, this hatred, this spitefulness that I mean, it does no good to anybody. Like you take a look at all of the mental health numbers, not just like throw away since the pandemic began, but since social media kind of began and we're getting more and more into a mental health crisis. And then you toss the pandemic into it. I just saw a, a survey the other day, one in four, literally 25% of American adults have seriously contemplated suicide within the past three months. Mm. That's absurd. Wow. Wow, that's un that is that's terrible. It's you know it's it's really like mind blowing to me, just how these things are really influencing and rewiring our brains, and how we think about things. I I think if you're spending all of your day on Twitter, there's a lot of information out there. There's people spending eight to ten hours a day on Twitter, arguing with people not understanding that they are literally physiologically changing how their brain is wired and how they actually are interacting with other people. It has become their, um, their overseer. It has taken, the, the technology has not only, you're not, you've become subservient to the technology. It is your overseer at that point. And you have lost all sense of what it means to make critical decisions and understand what's actually happening with other humans with that. And you may be arguing with somebody that's not even a human. Well, it's a robot. Yeah, that too. A lot of these are robots. Yeah. Uh, they're bots. Yep. You know? Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's just so interesting too, because uh, if, if everything you see is negative, right? If every interaction you have is an argument, you're 100% right. That starts to play out even in your personal life too. And it's happened to me as well, right? Like I'm, I'm not immune to this either. And I'm aware of a lot of it going on. So like every time we send out an, an email, I'll get 10 to, you know, anywhere from 10 to like 50 responses per email. Vast majority of them are super positive, super upbeat. It's awesome, right? Like the community we're building, the donut readership, the subscribers, you guys are like the absolutely incredible. But I will have those, you know, one, two, three, four, five fringe folks who, if those emails come in like back to back to back to back to me, I'm in like full on battle mode, right? Where I'm like, right. all right, I got to defend our company. I got to defend our coverage. I got to defend the facts as, as, you know, as they are actually played out in, in reality. And then that just rolls over to all of my interactions on the day. So I start to look at people kind of more in a hostile manner versus the typical friendly manner I try and approach people with. And I don't like that. And it, it turns me into somebody in a person that I'm not a major fan of. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say like, if somebody's besides looking through, you know, let's say looking at the donut and information, and by the way, I love the color coding of everything. It's great. Um, what is the best way for somebody to make an informed decision in your opinion about candidates and, 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 
And in terms of like not looking at all this crazy stuff, but like the policies and what's the best way to approach that? Just looking at, hey, this is what they're into. These policies, that policies. How do you wade through that to get to that? And that's that's a challenge. Um, and that's one of the things that we're working to build. I don't think we'll have it up and running by 2020, hopefully by 2022, but some sort of election guide because it appears a lot of the coverage that I see is more focused on the politicking versus, again, like the style over substance, right? And to me, I'm looking at the the policies. So a lot of times if you want to, and this will take time, um, not going to lie, like this takes a whole ton of time to do, which is probably why most people don't do it. But going to the candidate websites, they'll have all of their policy and platforms on there uh, very explicitly. And it's from the horse's mouth, right? So it, there's no room for distortion. Uh, there's no room for narrative. There's no room for bias, misinformation. It's literally from the candidates themselves. So that's typically what I I try to do and focus a lot on record. Because uh, as we mentioned earlier, man, it's like I have a, a healthy distrust of politicians because I see a whole ton of pandering. It's just saying whatever you think will get you elected because that, again, is the incentive structure is get reelected and whatever you need to do to get reelected is typically what gets done um, from a style perspective, right? Not a substance perspective. Uh, so that's, that's, that would be where I'd focus would be on the candidate websites. No, that makes a lot of sense. It makes me think though of if you step back and you look and you say, okay, this democratic candidate, this Republican candidate, and say, does that person actually, let's say on the Democratic side, do they do they really um appear, do they really believe in let's say like a more progressive, more more leftist approach to these things and policies? Or does the Republican side, does this person really want to cater to these policies and stuff? And it feels like the catering is always to the the extreme opposites of things. Like, why don't candidates have some things that that overlap, that they both want? You know, I never see that. It's always like, oh, you're too far left. Oh, you're too far right. And there, where's the overlapping of policy? Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, ultimately, that would come from the committees, wouldn't it? The RNC and the DNC. Right, right. So, I mean, they set the, they set the party platforms, and it's pretty much toe the line or get out. And again, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. I don't know. That's just crazy to me. Right. Right. It's like, and again, I feel like most reasonable people have heterodox beliefs. And like what that means is they have yeah. both, both sides. So, like myself, I would consider myself a heterodox individual. It sounds like you consider yourself a heterodox. I am completely. Like, literally, everybody I talk to is like a majority of the folks I talk to would put themselves in the same bucket. So, to me, it's kind of crazy that there's just these two parties and that's it, right? Like it's toe the line or get out. Um, you have, to, you know, no compromise. Uh, and I feel like there's room. Like, I think there is room for a, a third party to come along that espouses the views of like yourself or myself, or does a better job of trying to marry the two party platforms together instead of it just being one side or the other black or white, right? Like no gray, no nuance. Cause that's another thing that frustrates me too. Why no has that never happened though? Like, why is that like I have talked, Peter, I'm with you. I why has there never been another major party that has risen to the levels of our current thing? And that's I mean, I'm not a I'm probably not the best person to answer that because here's kind of my my theory. And again, this is just my theory. I haven't done a whole ton of research into it. Um, I think it might come down to power. 
as you have two party platforms that have pretty much consolidated political power. And as we know, right, like absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people in positions of power will scratch, claw, fight their way to maintain power, right, to stay in power. And if there's a third party that comes up that kind of challenges that, I could see that being a major problem or a major issue to the folks that run those two parties. Um, so again, that might be conspiratorial. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But to me, that seems somewhat reasonable based on zero knowledge that I have. No, I, I actually, so funny you mentioned that because I was just having this conversation uh, with a buddy of mine who I, I would consider to be very, uh, very conservative. And and he said, honestly, I feel like the two parties would try to destroy that third party <laughs> like they would not want. Even if those two parties don't like each other, they would dislike the third party even more. <laughs> <laughs> and so they would unite to destroy the third party that would try to you know, encroach upon the two parties power for that. And I was like, that could be true. I don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, there's, there's no real way to, to know, How do you know, yeah. Like, like I, I can't think of, well, maybe Ross Perot, right. What would that be? Late eighties? That was the closest, right. Of anything that was major, you know, that got close. You know? Yeah. Well, cause I was actually thinking about him earlier when you were saying, uh, typically you, you wouldn't hear a whole ton about candidates when you were younger. Wasn't he the one that bought like a, like an hour long spot or a half hour long spot on national TV? Well, he's extremely them. wealthy, like had extreme levels of wealth. So I think he could do that. And he was kind of a character too. Like I remember the debates and stuff. It was just kind of like a joke, but it was, he was kind of like funny. Like it was a kooky version of somebody else or something, you know, <laughs> it yeah. was just strange. It was, a, I don't think it was like a, it just felt like a weird soap opera. Honestly, I, I do remember that. And, but that was the last time I remember like that it was more of a, at least somewhat more serious challenge on that level. You know? Yeah. Well, that's, it's also something interesting too, to bring up when we're talking about third parties is the ability f to build a, a kind of grassroots coalition in today's internet age. Like, I feel like at least now where you don't have information consolidated to, you know, three major broadcasting companies, you have the ability to disseminate in information instantly and directly to your followers, to constituents and, and organize at levels that we've never really seen before in human history. Like that has to be the best, best chance, right? Or like now would be a time I think that might even be feasible, right? Like would, would you say yeah. that's a possibility? Yeah, and I even I say even this. Um, I try to really pay attention to things that are uh, much deeper down. So I think a lot of the consciousness of the nation is in you know the presidential election, maybe even the Senate. But if you look at a lot of these down ballot races, you're going. I think that's where you actually see where a lot of America is changing in those elections, because you're starting to see some crazy young people being elected to positions like you would never think people this young would be getting into this things. And you're starting to see a real change in the feelings, I think, in these down ballot races, which I think aren't people are not paying enough attention to because there's a there's a lot of effort and energy and promotion being given to those things of the future of those candidates. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I again, get kind of frustrated with, and I'm going to out myself here. Um, 
I don't understand why there's not more power given to localities. Like I would rather instead yeah. of seeing a strong central government, I would love to see strong local governments and like resources pushed down as close to that level as possible. Because to me, that's where change like actually happens. Like what the hell does somebody, some bureaucrat uh, from Florida and Washington, D.C. know about you, Darian Parker, living in Washington? Yeah. Right? Like, totally. Nothing. Totally. <laughs> nothing. And that's that's a huge problem for me. I, I I will say the same thing, honestly. Not I don't know I didn't know your views on that, but uh actually I've talked to enough people with, you know, in investigating this and through my podcast is an investigation for me of knowledge and information and learning, especially with these brought these uh episodes with the, the death row prisoners and talking to people in drug policy enforcement, criminal justice reform, all these things. They all say the local elections are more important than anything else. What happens in policymaking, lawmaking on your state level was way more important than what's happening federally for that. I've heard that so many times. And the power that people have in these elections is more um, apt towards your life than anything that happens on a federal level for that. Yeah. And to me, that's the way it should be, right? Like you'd want people, at least me personally, I want folks governing me uh, that know the area and know what the yeah. area needs versus somebody who's never been to my area, who has no idea, has never spoken to somebody from my area, but is still making legislation that applies to my area, you know? Yeah. Just, and they only come there because of, uh, they have to go there, let's say, because if it's a swing state, what the big hypocrisy to me is. It always it's always a big joke to me when like candidates go to Iowa and all these places and you know they would never go there ever ever they would never step foot in some little rinky dink ice cream shop or a hot dog stand in Ames Iowa ever unless they they knew that that had a part of their fate for the election I see through the hypocrisy of that it's like you see these people coming to town you're like really you think they're really interested in what's going on in this town they want your vote because they know it affects the electoral college for that. Unless that person's actually from there, I don't know. It's I want to know somebody who's actually in this city, in this town, in this state that's actually understands what's going on here. Most of these guys have or guys, girls, whoever, they have no clue what's going on in your state generally. No clue. How could they? How could they? Oh, and again, that's where I just go back to, to me, human beings are creatures that work the best based on incentives. Like human beings are incentive-based creatures, right? Like we're not that complicated. So the incentive, again, going back to what the incentive is for politicians, it's just to get reelected. And to me, the incentive structure has to change to actually change uh, the, the system and things of that nature. So like for me, that would be term limits, for instance. Um, I know a lot of people are advocates of getting money out of politics. And my frustration is I don't know that that will ever happen because the people who are voting on that are the same ones that it applies to. And I can just point to uh, like the Obamacare, for instance, when the entire Congress voted on Obamacare, it didn't apply to them. It applied to everybody else. And they vote like Congress, members of Congress vote on their raises. And I guarantee you, if you go back and you look at all of their votes, they're not voting to give themselves less money. Right? <laughs> so it's, like, it's like the until that changes, I'm not all that confident in, you know, a, a politician's word on something. Certainly. Yeah, definitely. 
you know, well, let's turn this to a different thing. Let's just like go really different. But I, I don't know if people are thinking, I know you had mentioned to me about, uh, you know, business related stuff, space related. I'm like, oh God, I'm so into this stuff too. <laughs> but the Tesla stock, Peter, I want to hear about the Tesla stock because I've been watching it myself. I own a Tesla. I'd love to hear, or maybe some news related to what's going on there. Because it feels like that Tesla has made this major jump, not only in the stock, but obviously in terms of their ability to move forward in their space-based projects in the last year. Yeah. Well, just to, to be clear, let's separate Tesla and Space. SpaceX. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, starting off with Tesla, uh, so we're recording this, what is it, August 18th today? August 18th. So I think it was a couple weeks ago, right, where Tesla's market cap just passed Toyota, which made it the most valuable automaker in the world. And my whole thing on that is I don't know, based on what I've seen right at, at this moment in time, that Tesla stock is worth that, right? Or, or Tesla is the most valuable automaker in the world. And I think that's what I kind of mentioned to you. Is that, is that what you wanted to get into? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just interested in your your take on why that is. I, I really don't have a huge opinion on it, honestly. <laughs> I'm just like... I but I'm curious why you think it may be let's say overvalued or not as worth as it is as much as it is. Yeah, for sure. And and just to be clear too, this isn't saying that Tesla's not a great company, right? It's got mad potential. And I don't think you can ever underwrite Elon Musk. Uh the guy literally put oh, a freaking on space and then uh made rockets reusable again, right? Which hadn't happened in a long period of time. So that's not a guy you really want to bet against a lot, but I still think that Tesla's stock price is severely overinflated because it's not actually operating at a profit. That's smoke and mirrors because they're selling regulatory credits to eke out profits. Uh, they're delivering less vehicles than legacy automakers, like seven to eight times less vehicles on an annual basis. And the EV market is only about to get more competitive because their subsidies are starting to go away. You actually see in areas where their subsidies are starting to go away, like in China and the US, decreased electric vehicle demand. So combine that mm. with legacy automakers jumping into the market and you got these upstart companies, other EV companies like Rivian, Nikola, uh, Lucid just uh, unveiled another car. Right. So it's just going to be more saturated. And I'm not entirely sure that given all of that, Tesla's worth what it says on paper right now. Is that because, I mean, is it a huge function of Elon Musk though? And like his yeah. his success and his other businesses, SpaceX, Solar City came into Tesla, like that he basically he says he's going to do something and it actually happens. Is there almost more of a betting on him versus the actual components of the company? And that's, I mean, to me, that would be the only way to justify the price as of now, right? Like this is a long-term thing and you're betting that he's going to come up with something that other automakers are not, right? And it's also true that they have a, a big head start on the EV side of things. But when it comes to autonomous driving and, and all, I think people severely underestimate the legacy automakers because they got a shit ton of money to spend, man. And they've been making cars for a hundred plus years. And the intricacy of the the supply chain and logistics and manufacturing, like they figured all of that out. Like Tesla still is scoring the lowest rated in quality according to JD Power, right? So, granted, it's getting better. Uh, they're churning out more cars than they ever have before, but they haven't quite got their manufacturing processes and supply chain as tight as the legacy automakers. Which again, to me, is something to to be wary of because they they also have the money to spend to 
uh, by a, a Waymo, right? Well, not, maybe not Waymo, but like GM with yeah. crew and other automated vehicle uh, companies. And that's just an easy way to catch up. And, you know, I, I just don't, I just don't see, I, I just don't see Tesla competing once, uh, once all of the legacy automakers come in. You think, you think that, um, Elon Musk in general may turn his attention more towards SpaceX because that seems like something that there are maybe the less competitors in the field. I mean, there is like Amazon and, you know, um, I forgot what Jeff Bezos thing is yeah, blue, blue something. Origin. Yeah. Blue origin. origin. You have Boeing and different things. Maybe that, that Virgin could Galactic. be a thing for him, you know, Virgin Galactic. Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe it's it, just a, it, the guy, guy is incredible. Like he, he, he truly, really and truly astonishes me. Like the guy's got a million projects going. He's got open AI, right? that, like uh, the, the AI um, initiative. He's got Neuralink, right? Like the brain chip yep. interface, which we just did a story on this the other day. Um, some people are raising the possibility of hackers being able to get into chips and controlling yeah. people. So that's sound. If you want to get into some black mirrorish type stuff, we can. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to be control. I mean, I'm interested in that stuff, but I do see even Elon Musk though. He is very much a proponent of there needs to be regulations on AI. Like this can't just be running free, and just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it in terms of that field. You know, I mean, I've, I've talked to several people in AI field. It's actually some of my favorite conversation because it's. It, while it's also based in reality, it's, it's also sci-fi in, in, in many ways too. So it's like these two weird, like fiction, nonfiction genres com coming together, you know? Yeah. Well, even adding on top of that, um, uh, have you seen the movie or, uh, I'm sorry, the show altered carbon? Oh, I love it. Love it. Uh, Freaking crazy. So for, for people listening, who haven't heard of it before. It's essentially this futuristic kind of dystopian type world, where class uh, differences are completely ex uh, exacerbated. And there's these things called stacks, which contain the human consciousness, and they're interchangeable uh, with human bodies, which are called sleeves, right? So you could toss my consciousness in Darian's body and vice versa. So in Altered Carbon, uh, there is, and this is one of the things that, that kind of blows my mind. I think that type of technology is feasible, and where I kind of wanted to take this was CRISPR, right? Like gene editing. Yeah. Because to me, that raises the same moral dilemmas or similar moral dilemmas as uh, what we were talking about earlier with AI, but human beings, right? Like, do we make super, like genetic superhumans? Like, is that going to be a thing? Is that moral? Should that be legal? I have, I have no idea. Ah, uh, that is a huge conversation. I mean, I... Well, one, I'm a huge fan of Altered Carbon. I blew through both seasons with uh, vengeance. <laughs> like, <laughs> with it. But it makes me think, you know, with the whole stacks, and it became a whole system of, like, you know, sleeves, re-sleeving, the concept of um, almost digital immortality, um, potentially, and all those things. Weirdly enough, I've gotten in um, many conversations about immortality with people, life extension, and uh, I, this is probably controversial, but I don't think most humans could handle being having immortality. I really don't think so. Would you want to be immortal? Uh, uh, ooh, um, maybe because I feel like I'm the type of person that like I could live many lifetimes and be adventurous and ambitious in many different things. There's many different things 
in this life that I'm never going to get to that I wish I had time to master over, you know, take my time and do each of those things one at a time over many centuries for that. But I also know that there is a lot of human beings that they're struggling just to do one thing right now. And giving people more time doesn't mean that they'll be more productive. And often what happens if you give people more time to finish something, they procrastinate it. They keep putting it off. So saying that you will give them forever may not make them more productive either. And I don't know. I just don't, I just think you'll see, you would see a tremendous amount of psychological breaks, tremendous suicide because people would get tired of living without having no real substance or purpose if they don't have it. And, you know, it may sound good to maybe be young forever, let's say be young, but if there's nothing behind that youth, it is just purely, you can party too much, you can hang out, you can do every exercise, you can do anything you think is enjoyable too much and get tired of it. So what are you going to do if you have forever with that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also do you have, does the human race actually advance, right? Like that's a mean right. brief complacency, wouldn't it? Because if you're in the same I place, think so. there's no, there's no incentive. Again, going back to the incentive structure, you were talking, <laughs> exactly. you were talking about if, if you tell me, ah, you know, you got 300 years to take the trash out. It's like, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't even think about it for like the right. first 299 years. <laughs> So, so, I mean, I think there's something to that too. And this also raises a question that I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. So in like 100 to 200 years, like what do you think future societies will look at what we're doing today and go like, I cannot believe they thought that was okay, right? Like, uh, like Jim Crow in the 60s or slavery would be yeah. a good example of that, where we look back at it now and we go, how in the hell did people think that was okay? Like, what do you think that's going to be for future societies looking back at us? I've thought about this. I've definitely thought about this. Maybe not on a huge level, but I think in terms of our planet, people will be very disappointed in how we treated the planet 200 years from now. They'd be like, why do you, why would you do just doing that? Like, why were you, why did you use oil? <laughs> Stuff like they might, like, why was that a thing? Like, that seems so irresponsible. I feel like that's what people would say or really, this is how you uh, build cities? Are you serious? Like, that, you know, like, why would you do it that? Why would you stack people on top of each other like that and have them? I, I, I don't know. I feel like the, like how we live will probably be changed. But also, this sounds very cryptic. I'm not sure we're going to be here two, 300 years from now, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm not so sure the human race is going to be around in 300 years. I, you know, that's, that's one of those things that I always, I always think about that because the, one of the things that I've been just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole on since the pandemic began is simulation theory. And like just the general idea that future civilizations could be running simulations on us and being like, oh, okay. So how do we actually preserve the human race, uh, given all of the destruction, um, that, the that we've, we've wrought over the centuries and have the ability to still wreak and don't act on, thankfully. Um, I think that's the whole thing with AI is on some level, people's fear is that if, uh, let's say a robot became sentient, you developed a kind of robotic consciousness and they looked at biological beings like humans and say, this, this is illogical. Their existence is illogical. Look what the decisions they make. They do very bad things to each other. We will, our simulate, our calculations say that the planet will be better without them type of thing. 
There's no fear that that they would look at us and go, "You're stupid. You're stupid." <laughs> like, like, why would you decay? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you ever look at a tree in a yard or something or the forest and then think that thing, unless it's pulverized down, let's say you just let it go, it will it will live way beyond you and I easily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It will. It is. It is the infinite machine. We are not physically, and the AI may look at us if they were. If that would be and say, I don't think so. Uh, this is not necessary, you know. Yeah, like uh, like the appendix, or as people say, like the little yeah. toe is going to go away, or pinky, or some whatever. But man, that that actually might come sooner than we think, and it might not be AI; it might be aliens. Uh, I love the aliens. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you saw. You're all the, in the aliens, <laughs> man. Oh man, I love space alien. Like it's Me just too. so cool to talk about. But uh, did you see the Pentagon the other day? confirm the existence of a USO, UFO task force to investigate these mysterious UFO sightings over nuclear facilities? Okay. I've been very into this for a long time, Peter. And uh, yes, I did see that. Uh, it did not surprise me, honestly. Uh, I have some intel here on some. Right? I'm not Ooh. crazy, guys, okay? But my father was in the military for 28 years, an officer, and uh, he he did work at Area 51 for a little bit. No freaking um, way. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And uh, that's, I mean, that's all I know. He would tell me, like, you know, that it was a very secretive life my father lived um, in the military. So I really still don't really know what he did during the time. But um, I know that that was part of his kind of the waning years of his service um, in the military and civilian contracting. And I asked him straight up, I said, what do you think about the uh, Pentagon and all this stuff releasing uh, all this information and UFOs? And he goes, I don't think they should be doing it. I honestly think they should not be doing it. And then he would, he left it at that. Really? So does that mean the answer that we're going to find is one that we don't want to find? Yeah, I I don't think people do well when they sense that they're not the top dog. You know, our civilization is considered basically like, we're the top of the food chain, but what happens when we're not? You know, I mean, I mean, you, we're not going to do well with that. I, I'm almost positive we will not do well with that if that occurs. I mean, no, we do not want to be subjugated, and you know, people overseeing humans. Like, we're okay to do that to to animals. Oh, we do it all the time. You know, and, and to many extents, we're trying to we're trying to be the overseer of the earth and overtake that. But it's like, eh, let's slow down here. All right. You know, like, you know, but I don't, I don't think it's going to go well. I'm sorry, man. I, I like independence day and all these, <laughs> like, I really don't think it's going going to go that well. <laughs> no, especially with, uh, especially with kind of what I've, I've read and learned and listened to regarding the potential or possible anti-grav propulsion technology. We're toast, man. Oh, dude, we're, <laughs> we're done. They're just donezo, right? Like it's, it's, uh, and one of the things I also don't think we really understand that again, I think about this a lot and my brain's a weird place, but how fragile our life is. Right? Like even if you think about from an environmental perspective, like what is it old faithful under Yellowstone or yes. there's, there's like so many uh, environmental disasters waiting to happen from volcanic eruptions to all of this, like meteorites, uh, meteors hitting the earth. It's like, we're so fragile. We're just on a, on, a, on a rock floating through space and we're made up of carbon and like tissue and we're just so fragile. 
And I mean, you get a cut on your finger, people freak out, man. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like <laughs> I got one of those yesterday, actually, from a, 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 a Stouffer's lasagna tin. So, and you know, I don't know what's weird is the first thing that went through my mind there was, oh, I'm going to sue the shit out of them. And then I just yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> oh, Peter. I'm like, no, no, that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, but I think it's interesting with the UFO thing because it's, like you and I are paying attention to it. I'm sure a lot of people, but it's it's not bubbling on the surface of like elections and racial inequality and coronavirus. It's kind of like in any other time, I'd be like, whoa, this is crazy. But they're like pumping some big stuff on this. And it's like, nobody is really pushing it. Like, hey, you guys understand the importance of this? Like, they're actually looking into it like on official level. Like- are they trying to fit it under the, just like kind of slip it past people? They're trying to slip it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I mean, I see something similar going on with, with China, right? China's doing the same thing yes. in the South China Sea with like Taiwan and they just took over Hong Kong. And one of the things that I just uh, realized recently, because we did a, an entire piece on it, we did what was called the helping, we called it the helping hand series, where we surfaced these uh, egregious humanitarian rights violations that are occurring internationally. Like the general kind of idea being... Like, yes, the U.S. is far from perfect, um, but, you know, look at how other people are actually living, right? Like, let's be grateful for, uh, you know, the the way that we live, even though it's far from perfect today. And in Tibet, China is just systematically destroying that country. They deposed yes. their government in the 80s. They're dumping nuclear waste there. They're taking all of its natural resources. And it's just kind of scary to me to... Uh, to kind of see that, to look at that and think about that and how authoritarian regimes globally are taking advantage of the pandemic to kind of assert more dominance and assert more power and try and make these militaristic moves that have been probably bubbling under the surface for a while. And they can get away with it now. And that's that's another thing that kind of frustrates me about the misdirection of media, politicians and, and all that jazz. Well, isn't like China, they're buying up huge amounts of real estate in other countries and Develop, they've developed like rail lines from China all the way to London and different things. I was watching a special on this and I was like, am I the only person that thinks this is not good? <laughs> like, you know, like, or that their goal was it, I think, 2025 to become the superpower of like, yeah. you know, digital technology. And I mean, if you look at what they're doing, I mean, they have a surveillance state yep. at this point, complete surveillance state. I saw they have this thing. The audience may not be aware of it, but I think this is the good stuff that they have. Basically, you can buy things on like your citizen score on there. And, and, and you basically can be denied access to things based off of your citizen score, flying, buying certain things. If you jaywalk, you get essentially uh, humiliated for jaywalking and things of that nature. I mean, I may not mind that too much because I hate people <laughs> jaywalk. But, you know, like, <laughs> but, you know the facial recognition uh, technology is incredible. At this point, they're speeding past us like a freight train right now. This stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Made in China 2025. If you sit down and read it, it's it's kind of. I mean, it's it's scary. And you're describing literal like these are literal Black Mirror episodes. Or like I can think yeah. of two. One of them was um, uh, the woman who uh, the essentially your social media rating uh, determined what oh, you could do. Crazy. 
Yeah. And then there was the other one where you just would like work out on that bike all day to receive merits yeah. that you'd be able to spend <laughs> yeah. on stuff. Like that's literally exactly what's going on in the world, right? And just to kind of add to all of the other stuff, you have like the theft of intellectual property. And one of the things that's really and I'll I'll tell you this story because this one just blew my mind. Are you familiar with their one child policy? Yes. Okay. So what China did to kind of stop from overpopulation with food shortages and like food supply and stuff like that is they mandated that every family in China could only have one child. And this, I forget how long it went on. I think it was from like what, 1960s to like the early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't remember specifically, but uh, I watched a documentary on it and it was created by a woman who was born in China, grew up in China and then moved to the U S and once she became a mother, uh, she goes, Oh, I just took a, I looked at China's one child policy with just, you know, new eyes and new vigor. So she went back to China and she was interviewing people and she was unearthing these stories about uh, like if the firstborn kid was a female, a lot of families would either kill the baby or just like leave it on the streets to die. Because if you have a female baby, right, it's the only child you could have, your yeah. name dies with that female baby. If families have more than one kid, uh, the authorities, the officials would come, they would drag everybody to jail. They'd sometimes burn down houses. They'd sometimes kill children in the streets. And it's it's just this this absolutely despicable policy when you take a look at it. But the thing that really, really, really surprised me, and I think it goes to show the power of information, is they asked, the, the woman who was doing the documentary asked every single person who was in it, again, after they're finished describing these atrocities for an hour long, was the one-child policy a good thing? And to a T, 100% of them, every single one of them said yes. That's crazy. I saw that, and I, that same thing you saw, and I was blown away by that. Blown away by that. Yeah. but And, and again, it's not surprising because the, the next couple minutes of that documentary went over the propaganda machine of China mm -hmm. and how – the, the people are indoctrinated from the earliest of early ages, right? Like the very first thing that they do in schools is they sing these, these fawning um, adorations towards past leaders like Mao and the current one, Xi Jinping. And it, that all starts from an early age where they're just kind of syst systematically instilled in folks that this is the way it is. This is the way life is. And this is the best thing for you. Um, we're benevolent leaders. And a lot of times it's so far from the truth. Like uh, we were talking about with the social credit system and then the, the Uyghur Muslims that they have in re-education camps. Yes. It's happening in Tibet and with the Falun Gong, right? It's just, it's, it's systematic. And that's kind of the future that I think we have if, uh, if China continues to assert and grow its, its dominance on a global stage. What I think also, now that we've kind of got into the US-China aspect of this is I have found very interesting that while these things are going on, it's like, wow, these are terrible things that um, take instance, the NBA has yeah. done a lot of, lot of business, getting paid a lot of money by China and, and working on there. What is the ethics of that, of being in that, you know, making money in that country when these things are going on? I wonder if that will change as kind of we're on this collision, it feels, between U.S. and China, this kind of superpower versus superpower, kind of mano a mano. feels like Rocky Four or something, you know, like, but, you know, replace the Soviet Union with China, 
you know, as what what is the state in, you know, in terms of your reporting with news, the state of relations with U.S. and China, sanctions, things of that nature? I mean, it's uh, and it's hard, right? Because again, there's there's a lot of stuff going on from the sanctions to the trade deal that's kind of fallen by the wayside with all of the pandemic stuff uh, to the closing of the consulates like in Houston, um, China retaliating, closing one of the U.S. consulates in China, uh, the expulsion of journalists from the countries, like both countries. Again, it's just like reciprocation, right? It's like tit for tat. So U.S. does something, China responds. U.S. does something, China responds. Um, and one of the things that I've been really, really interested in is the kind of – because we have a global ec- – uh, economy now, right? Like everything is is intertwined, and I think COVID kind of uh, exacerbated that even more, right? Or not not exacerbated, maybe, but just showed how intertwined our global economies are. And the extrication of the U.S. from any Chinese company to me is really fascinating, especially knowing that the the data law um, China passed in 2017. And the fact the CCP pretty much has their hands in in every industry, um, to me, it it goes to show that they are our our enemy, right? Like this is our, this is to me Cold War Russia, uh, like U.S. China exactly. deal, right? And that's that's kind of exactly what it is. When you take again a holistic view of everything, everything we've talked about with China, their their plans, and it, it's, they're not hiding it. Right, like go read Made in China twenty twenty five. They it's are not hiding. Very explicit. <laughs> it's very explicit. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's that's like the next big challenge for the the U.S. as a country, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see it play out, especially economically and with the TikTok stuff going on now too. Explain a little bit about that with uh, TikTok and the significance of of that and like WeChat and things of that nature, you know. Yeah. So what it all goes back to is that 2017 uh, law I was mentioning. So China passed a law in 2017 that mandated any Chinese-based company had to hand over its data to the Chinese government should the government ask. And as you're probably aware, when the CCP comes a knocking, you don't say no. So right. the uh, TikTok's owner, ByteDance, and WeChat's owner is also ByteDance, is a Beijing-based company, a Beijing-based startup. So technically, that 2017 law applies to ByteDance. So all of the data they're collecting from TikTok, 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 WeChat, um, that ultimately could end up in the hands of the CCP. And that's also why you see a big push with Huawei too. So Huawei is a Chinese telecommunications company that's received, I think it was like 70 billion plus dollars in subsidies from the Chinese right. government. Yep. Um, and the the big fight was the the five G infrastructure, right? Because we've heard about five mm-hmm. G for a while, right? Yeah. It's like a step up from four G, and it's supposed to be so fast. And the the fight for which companies would lay the infrastructure led to the fear, um, mainly from the U.S. And then we kind of got a lot of the other Western countries behind us here. But the fear was that uh, China would be able to build a back door into the five G infrastructure that Huawei would create, and uh, just be able to do nefarious things with it. Um, so to me, again, it's just super interesting to see all of this play out. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think it, it lends itself into pivoting to uh, coronavirus, and which I'm sure a lot of people in the audience will be tuning in to hear kind of the thoughts related to that, because that feels to be the central global issue, especially for so many people has overtaken the entire planet. 
we're at a point where a lot of company, well, a few companies, right, are on uh, phase three clinical trials, I believe. And the, within the next six to eight months or so, there could be an actual vaccine or so. Um, where does that stand in terms of what is being reported related to that? Yeah, so um, this will be from our coverage end of July. So as of end of July, there was 23 vaccines currently undergoing human clinical trials. Uh, and eight of them have passed phase two clinical trials, or I'm sorry, eight, eight of them are in uh, human trials right now. And you have like the Moderna and National Institute of Health vaccine, which is phase three uh, trials after its first two phase one and phase two. Uh, prompted the proper immune response in every single one of the volunteers. So what phase three typically entails or what phase three entails is a 30,000 person trial. And we should have those results sometime in the fall. Uh, but you might have seen also too the fact that Russia uh, said that they, yes. they had a vaccine. Yes. So one of the interesting things there is they haven't tested that vaccine on more than 100 people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's not good, man. <laughs> no. no. So they've tested it on 70, 76 total people. And then they go, yeah, it's uh, it's ready for everybody else. <laughs> Which again, you know, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, right? I'm not a, a, I don't know anything about vaccines, but to me that seems a little hasty. And I know there's experts that back up also what I'm saying. But again, part of the confusion of coronavirus is for every health official, you can find to say one thing, you can find a health official to say the other thing. So it's like we're five, six months into this thing and still nobody really knows what's what's going on. I think there's a lack of knowledge too about the actual vaccine creation process. And it's one thing I honestly had no clue about it until I educated myself on the actual process, which is amazing. Like you know, there's so much information out there. You could really become get deep into the weeds and learn some things. But I think so much of our society is headline culture, so we don't really look deeply into things. But after looking into it, I really studied it. I really looked. I said, okay, this makes sense why it takes this amount of time. Because you, you think 12 to 18 months, why does that take so long? But then you learn about the different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, you're providing this, and then you got to see what's the response as a create immunity, what are the side effects. And as you get larger and larger populations of people taking it, it's going to take longer to study those effects of that for that. But I find a lot of people are not knowledgeable about that process and that you may have 23 of these companies doing it, but there's, there's actually, they're not all doing the same exact version of the virus either and how they're uh, presenting it. There's different methods, methodology to, to get to the vaccine, it seems. you know. Yeah. Well, it's a, a big reason of the, the it typically takes 10 years, right? Isn't that the creation yes, cycle? Yes, 10 vaccine? years. Yeah. Is that a lot of regulation or like what typically contributes to that? Because I haven't gone down the rabbit hole on the actual the yeah. creation process for it. A lot of regulation. Actually, a good resource is, funny enough, explained on Netflix has a whole thing about coronavirus. And one of the episodes is vaccines, basically creation of a vaccine. And it gives an extremely detailed approach to from the beginning of the creation of, you know, vaccine to all the trials and other things. So what a lot of people also, it's the doses, you know, how, how long it takes to actually get that amount of doses together to be disseminated to the public is actually very hard to do. It's not an easy thing. And then you have 
companies creating ahead of time, which is risky, doses, you know, 500 to a billion doses before the vaccine is even done for that. Um, so, you know, it's there, that there's all these things to try to push it forward to make it go quicker. And I think that's the hesitancy for people as they go, well, if you do something much faster, you say it takes 10 years, then you said it takes 18 months. Like, is the quality going to be good if you, if you've basically shortened the timeline that much? I've been following this pretty close. And from what I've seen, it just seems like they've sped up because more people are working on it and it's important. It's like, what did it take us like back in the, when, you know, the race to space, that was not a thing until it became a thing, until, until it became important to focus on it. Then we got there exceptionally quickly, exceptionally. Was that the Kennedy speech early sixties? Yes. Yeah. That happened. I don't think people understand the gravity of how quickly within 10 years time we put a person on the moon. That's impossible, it felt like, based off of what you might know about that time that we were in. We were focusing on making TVs and cars. That was what scientists were working on. And then it shifted completely to, we need to be the first to do this. Competition, incentive pushed us to create that. So I'm not necessarily skeptical that it's quicker. I feel like once you have the entire world focused on one thing, you should get things done quicker. The priority is there quicker. But from what I know, they're not skipping the actual protocols. They're going through each phase like it's supposed to be done. And they're at phase three, 30,000 people. And now we're going to see if all those people create a strong immune response, that many people, it's probably pretty good. Honestly, it is. Well, and we also got to talk about the flip side too, because this is one of the main things that I'm just a little confused by. Um, And I did kind of want to toss it out there because I know if I'm confused by it, I know a lot of other people probably are too. Um, I've seen the narrative kind of change, right? Like when we first, when the virus first became prevalent in the US, it was all about flattening the curve, right? So the focus was on the hospital capacity, right? Like making sure that we had enough resources to be able to treat all of the people that got the virus. And the reason we were staying home is not because uh, less people overall over the length of this pandemic were going to get um, sick, right? Like the same amount of people were still going to get sick. We were spreading it out over a prolonged period of time. And once we kind of flattened the curve on a national level, a lot of the focus turned to new cases. And where I'm kind of confused is the focus went from the, the hospital capacity to new cases, while at the same time, I'm seeing studies that indicate uh, the spread of the virus is anywhere from like six to 24 times more prevalent than testing indicates. And so again, just extrapolating those numbers based on what we know now, the US just passed 5 million total cases. So on the low end, if if these studies are correct, on the low end, that would mean 30 million people have had or already had the virus. On the high end, 24, right? Like that's 130, you know, 140 million people that already had the virus. Now we're getting close to that that herd immunity number, right? Because I've seen 60 percent tossed around. I've also seen yeah. close to 50% tossed around. Again, nobody has any freaking clue. But no. if <laughs> nobody does, but these studies no. are not happening just in the US, they're happening in Europe too, right? Like a case, uh, a UK study came out. So the UK has 318,000 confirmed cases as of yesterday. So it was August 17th. The study indicated 3.4 million people already had COVID 
So that would be 10 times more prevalent than testing indicates, right? So that range seems to be kind of consistent on a global scale with countries that we can trust data from, right? Like I don't trust data from China. I don't trust it from Turkey. I don't trust it from Iran, right? No. So the countries we can actually trust these numbers from seems to indicate that the virus is so much more widespread than testing indicates, which to me, that's great news. If that's true, right? Is that not good news? I think that's very good. I actually, Peter, I just saw the same thing you saw, literally just saw that. Um, and I, because th- it was basically the title was, we may be closer to herd immunity than we thought, yeah. essentially. That was in the donut. We put that in the donut, the New York Times. Yeah, order. yeah. And listen, yeah. I get all my stuff from the donut, everybody, <laughs> okay? I just, I, every day it comes in, I'm like, uh, I'm going in right now, you know? Actually, I think I was reading it right before we got on here because I was like, I haven't read it yet. But anyways, I, uh, yeah, and I was thinking, if that's true, you should be pretty excited about that because that means we are nearing the completion of this within the next so many months, you know, within the six months. If it's not true, it's an extremely long road, extremely long road. But I think the problem is there's just so much uh, contradictory information there's a lack of trust. And I feel like that began just from the beginning was a weird situation. Uh, lockdown was a weird situation. How we're dealing with right now feels like a weird situation. Then it's been politicized. That's a weird situation. So people are like, what What? What am I supposed to believe about this? Yeah. And like, can somebody tell me what I'm supposed to believe about this? <laughs> and the straight answer is nobody knows. Nobody man. knows nobody, anything. Like, man. Really nobody <laughs> like, knows. And that's that's part of the scariest thing to me is again I feel like we're just flying blind, right? Like, but again, that also goes back to what I firmly believe in is the power of human ingenuity and innovation to solve the world's problems. Because you were just talking about the fact that we've literally fit like a decade of vaccine development into six months. Yeah, it's think incredible. about it this way. I this is from a Chris Rock stand-up special. It cracks me up. He was like, "You can make." A heat-proof shield that withstands the entry into from space into the Earth. You can't make a good bumper for a Honda, <laughs> and it's like it's all priority for people. Like humans have created some of the most amazing things ever, and we're on the verge of creating and like mind-blowing, uh, science blurring, science fiction blurring, reality-based things. I'm telling you, the stuff you're going to be reporting on with the donut in the next ten years is probably going to blow human consciousness. When it comes through, it really is. But if we really want to do stuff, we do it. If there's an incentivize, you talk about the incentivize, if there's an incentive, there's a need, even somewhat of a spark of a global need for something and people semi agree on it, amazing things happen. This thing, I don't, it's just weird to me. I, I'm so like, and I feel people's frustration. Like so many people come to me and say, they have strong feelings on this thing or that thing. Now it's especially colleges and schools that is dominating the headlines. I'm sure that's a big thing for you guys in yeah. discussing that. Well, we it's very tenuous. Too. Yeah. Like we have interns that are, so I'm seeing this play out in real time because we have interns that are about to go back to college. Like our, our summer intern program just ended literally yesterday. And through all of that, over the past couple of weeks, I got to have a firsthand seat to the roller coaster that is like colleges now. So, for instance, one of the one of our interns was a uh, or is a swimmer at UPenn, and she was all set to go to school. Right, like they were supposed to move in tomorrow. Right, so the nineteenth. Uh, 
And then last week, literally on Friday, Penn sends out an entire email to its student body and goes, ah, by the way, we're not going to have in-person classes anymore. And she had her, she was living off campus, right? So she had her yeah. apartment. Um, now, now she's got to sublet the apartment, go move out of the apartment after just moving into it. Uh, swimming is not going to happen for her in the fall because all f- classes are canceled. Mm-hmm. And it makes no sense to go to, you know, live in Pennsylvania when she's from North Carolina. So now she's just going to stay home, go to online school, which by the way, the tuition is not decreasing. That stays the same. No. So no. it's like, who, ah, and man, it's just a, a frustrating scenario all around. It is a frustrating scenario, and I, I I understand all sides of the frustration with people, and I think for me, I just try to be sensitive to everybody's opinions and say, listen, I think we're all in a boat of, we're, we're just, we're in a boat that's going somewhere, but we don't know where we're going. We're just kind of out there, the GPS is shaky, you know, it's kind of like trying to figure things out, and you know, one thing I do know, and it's something I definitely wanted to bring up as I, because I feel like I've been having this discussion quite a bit is I think one of the, this is also highlighting how unhealthy our country is in many, in, in terms of we, we spend a lot of, t- we're talking about public health in a sense, but we are not talking about to me, what is the next pandemic, which is already, it's happening already. And we're, we're, we're not employing enough to really think about the future of this which is our our poor state of disease in general, or an, an obesity in particular. Yeah. That I think we've seen from a lot of the hospital studies with coronavirus and more information is that this is decimating our unhealthy population tremendously. And of course, you're going to have some younger people here and there and different things going on. But overwhelmingly, it has seemed to be, it is decimating our, our elderly and uh, unhealthy uh, compromised um, people. And, you know, the country's already 40% obese, 40% United States. Let that sink in. Over a third of our population is obese. The projections, because I'm in this field with fitness and wellness, and we look at this, the projections is 60% in 20 years, 60%. That means somebody who actually is uh, a healthier individual is going to be very rare for you to see in the United States, extremely rare. That's a pandemic in 20 years. Book it right now, guaranteed. It's happening. It is already an epidemic. It is officially already an epidemic, just like diabetes, all these things. But because it doesn't kill people quickly, and it's not something that is like, oh, tomorrow in a week you could be dead. It is a slow moving pandemic, and it is going to be it is going to be the collar on the United States neck in 20 years. You'll be writing about it. I'm telling you. <laughs> what's, what's causing it? Uh, it's multifactorial. Um, you could look at you know, social media in terms of people being online all the time, lack of um, engagement. You know, Sports are not as big as they were for kids. Like when I was growing up, you'd have less and less sporting programs. Uh, you can have a 10 hour podcast on nutrition and related to that, um, low cost of, uh, fast food, uh, food deserts. I mean, you name it, it's, it's there, um, there, it's a serious, serious issue, but it's also being complicated, Peter, by terminology too. Now you have instances where People do not want it to be a disease. They, they don't. That is discriminatory to call it a disease. Obesity. Yeah. 
or there is fat shaming has become like, if you're talking about obesity as a disease and it's unhealthy state, this is, you're fat shaming people. That's not, this not, it's a health issue. It's not about like there being some issue with um, discrimination for that. It's a health issue. It's not about, you know, this other thing. So we're fighting all these forces. And, and this is also another statistic that is very disappointing. In the last 30 years, 15 to 18% of people exercise regularly. It has not changed one percentage in 30 years. But the obesity level has increased dramatically. So we're getting fitter people, healthier. The gap is widening. We're getting more obese people. There, it, it's, it's much like the wealth gap. The wealth gap and the gap in health are growing together at the same time for that. And that's that has to frustrate you as a, a health professional because it's not like people uh, don't know what to do, right? Like it's not like obesity <clears throat> is an immutable characteristic, no. right? It's something you can you can attack. It's something you can work on, something yes. you can work to eliminate. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, like if you know, the, your race can't change uh, and just things like that. So to me, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, definitely. Yeah scary, man. I'm telling you, it's like, <clears throat> it's the thing that I've been telling being in the field for a long time, <clears throat> knowing a lot of people in health and wellness, pathology, virology, you know, again, like you, I'm speaking to a lot of people. It's not like I'm in a vacuum saying this, you know, it's one of, one of the fortunes I have. And I think for you in the same way is you're just inundated with lots of people and information because you're seeking it. And it's part of what you do, your whole thing is this is the next thing. I mean, I feel like I'm Woody Harrelson in uh, the movie 2012 going, Red Yellowstone's going to blow, man. You know, like I'm telling you, and it's a fringe thing. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It's already happening. Just like China is buying up all this stuff and doing all these things, obesity is crushing America, and we're choosing not to do anything about it as a nation for it. And it will be, it's going to be hardcore. When that thing hits 65, 70%, you want to talk about a strain on the hospital system? Watch. Watch what's going to happen because of that. That's what it is right now. That's literally what it is. I mean, we're not addressing it. It's a reactive thing we do in this country. You, you're, the whole system with doctors don't know anything about health and exercise, nothing. They don't. Their curriculum doesn't prepare them for that. The entry level to get into fitness is so incredibly embarrassingly low so you get a lot of hacks in there and fitness enthusiasts. It's all this snowball effect that's happening. You know? So so if the information's out there, right, and people have a general idea of how to combat obesity and aren't doing it, what can we do? Or how like how can how can the trend be reversed? Right? Like how can we go instead from 40 to 60, 40 to 20, or in the opposite direction? I think we got to change our healthcare system. You talked about it earlier. It is, I think, this one of the central uniting themes of all parties. If we actually did something that was more proactive in our healthcare system, we created an incentive system, a reward system for being to have healthier habits, that might be a good step. But currently it's it has no value in that. There's no value to that. But then you're also fighting this big pharma thing of what if you got people really healthy? And they didn't have to take all these pills and all these things that they had. There's just so many weird things that you have to overcome for it, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, that's also interesting too, is the the healthcare and pharma aspect. Um, Because one of the things that I've, I've, again, been just confused by with the coronavirus pandemic is that it is all reactive, right? I don't see a whole ton of guides that are saying, hey, uh, take a whole ton of vitamin D. Here's what you can do to boost your immune yeah. system. Here are some things that you can do to lower your chance of getting COVID-19 or make it not as severe, right? Like I don't, I don't see any of that. Um, and it, it sounds no. similar to like what you're talking about with on the obesity side of it. Cause incentivizing good behavior through a healthcare system would be, to me, that's a win. And I've actually seen, win. Uh, aren't there some, um, and I, I'm not very familiar with these programs having gone out of the, I call it the corporate world. But uh, there's some insurance companies that incentivize people to take that type of behavior. Is that is that right? Yes, about it's that? big in corporate uh, cultures, especially in the last, I would say, fifteen to twenty years. You would have companies like Johnson and Johnson or universities like Duke University for their employees and stuff that w- they spend a lot of money on developing employee wellness. The problem is that it's it's very low. The participation level is extremely low. Even when you make it free for things, it's very low for that. Um, and so I think there's there are some people and companies who have made a huge investment in it because they want to have less absenteeism at work, um, less people using their healthcare for chronic disease and illness and all those things. They'll say, hey, if you do this, you'll get this much return on the dollar, more productive people. That's good. But we still haven't solved this this aspect of like, why is there so, why is a participation in regular exercise so low? It can, and, and in this 15, 80%, I'm telling you is like, is it like a higher level? You'll get people like Dr. Michael Joyner, who's um, uh uh, MD and exercise physiologist, very prominent in the field, saying that number is actually closer to 10% or under for that, actually. Mm. Um, but either way, you're talking about a really, really low percentage. And and as part of coronavirus, one of the big topics, I think, is also is like opening of gyms and things of that nature and, you know, gyms being open and it's healthy for people to exercise. And it is healthy for people. People should exercise. But I think the other aspect is that even if you open it, you have not solved the dreadfully low participation of that. And many, many, the people who want gyms back open a lot are people like me who are very fit already, who have an exercise lifestyle for that. It's so we still have not solved making that uh, a large percentage of people who think this is a really good thing to do all the time you know, pretty regular in their life. That that has not changed at all. And I've talked to everybody in my profession that a lot of people, top of the food chain, they are huge hitters in this. They're, they're dumbfounded too. They have no answers either. <laughs> so we're in trouble, man. I'm telling you. Well, one of the things that I just thought of too, does that impact the fitness industry? Like, so if less people are participating in exercise and it continues to go that route, does the industry start to shrink? Is that something you're scared of? I'm not. No, I don't. Because I, I think there will always be a willingness for people to start things and get and, and want to get in better condition. Um, you'll, you'll, it's kind of like New Year's resolutions, right? Every year, a larger group of people say, I'm going to get in condition this year. I'm going to do better. But then you have a large group of people who end up stopping that. So those people always keep coming back and they always keep feeding the industry. The problem is it's not consistent throughout the, the course of the entire year. 
a lot of the people who are participating in fitness are already fit or they, it's part of their lifestyle for that. And so the industry is not shrinking. It's definitely not shrinking. It's expanding, but there's different opportunities to expand for it. Now you have live virtual, things of that nature. Um, but I think a lot of your gyms, we were oversaturating gyms in a sense, like you, like London has a crazy amount of gyms in the United States, but you're seeing a lot of gyms going under by, by my estimates and colleagues and research out there, 25 to 50% of gyms will never open again, Whoa. ever. They're gone. But I mean, that's another thing too, pandemic wise is, you know, you're a small business owner. I'm a small business owner. I talk to other yeah. small business owners. I'm sure you do too. The I'm, I'm scared of what's coming. Right. I, not what's already yeah. happened, but of what's coming. And I'll, I'll use the restaurant industry as an example. It's an example I always love to use. When you're mandating 25 or 50% capacity, whatever it is, that business still deals with 100% of costs. And if you're not giving these businesses the ability to recoup 100% of their costs or 100% of their revenue, they're running at a loss. They're operating at a loss. And how long can these businesses actually do that? The answer is for a lot of them, not that long. Yeah, I, 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 I feel the same. Actually, I feel like as as dour as it seems on some level right now, I think you can expect a lot more of that devastation business wise. I mean, take Las Vegas as an example, a place I lived for a very long time. In my opinion, based off of what I know of the town, what I've been reading, I think they're in the beginning of a gigantic freefall, massive. Mm-hmm. You can't have a city based off of one primary uh, income stream, yeah. and 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 now you're seeing a huge escalation of violence in Las Vegas, and this is with people going back to work still. On this, a massive ex- escalation of violence, um, but you're having less people in casinos. Um, you know, most people in Las Vegas, their work is revolving around the entertainment industry. Even if you're not in the entertainment industry. The reason you're there is because, in a sense, you're part of providing a service that feeds the entertainment industry and the casino business. Uh, the casino and the entertainment are the main reason, or the big hub, and everything else is the people moving that live there are part of that industry on some level, directly or indirectly. So it's decimating yeah. that that place, yeah. you know. And I think that you're going to see more of that completely and i'm actually very concerned about the fall and winter in our in our country because you know we've been outside and stuff like that and it's nice outside and it's warm but what happens to our psyche as people have to stay inside in these really cold places and they can't really frequent things they like to do or travel the way they like to you know? yeah well and another thing too is uh, i think some of the misconceptions of the spread of the virus is a lot of it happens outside that's actually not the case most no, of it happens inside not. Right, so when we're forced to stay inside in the winter and in the fall, does that contribute to the spread of the virus? I would argue, yeah. I think yes. I think for certain. But I'm hopeful, like you said, like we saw, if we are much closer to herd immunity than we think, then that would be great. But if not, I'll reiterate, we're in trouble, man. <laughs> we're like we're in for a long deal. And even the other thing, I'm I'm not sure if you guys have covered this, but you know, this the whole mask wearing a mask thing has become a very you know, polarizing thing for people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I mean, again, this is my, my personal opinion. I want to separate it from, from the donut. So my personal opinion is it's reasonable to protect others and take steps to make sure someone else's grandma doesn't die or other people with 
secondary conditions like obesity, 40% of the country, as you mentioned earlier, is protected. That to me is, is a very reasonable thing. And I, I don't, I, I do also understand the other side too about the, the mandating aspect of it. But my whole point is it, it shouldn't have to be mandated. My point is like, this is a, a common courtesy for other people, not yourself, regardless of whether the science backs it or not. I don't know about you, but if I put a mask on, I feel protected, right? It's stupid probably, yeah. but like I feel more protected. Um, so if if that's what people need to get themselves through the day, I don't I don't see that as as that that big of a deal, you know. As long as again, as long as it's not mandated, because I understand the argument about mandated, but you know, it's reasonable to help other people. Like let's all live together, you know. I think the cost is low. It always becomes cost and power, and for you and for me, the cost is very low to wear a mask. For other people, the cost may be very high to wear a mask is there may be other thing, they, their identity may be wrapped up into their self-liberty or how their face looks and how they come across other people. I mean, I don't know. There's a variety of reasons why the cost may be extremely higher. They feel that their power is being completely taken by having a mask on for that. I don't feel that way. I mean, I mean, it's, I, I understand that it's good to take care of other people. But I think what's also interesting is that I got into a conversation with a good buddy of mine who's 76, and he's been through a lot in his life, and he's been tested quite a bit in his life, uh, mentally, physically, spiritually. And I do have somewhat of a belief that a lot of people just haven't, they haven't really experienced large level sacrifice on with other people. You know, they've lived in a very insulated world where Whatever suits them is good for them. But if they haven't had to experience a large level of sacrifice that involved a community, it, it sometimes it feels much harder to want to comply to certain things. Yeah. For that. That's what growing up in a military family for me, I learned all about that because you grow up in this unit with all these people who are doing the same thing in the military. And when you're like my dad was in the, um, the Gulf War and Desert Storm. And so, you know, we had to all rally together as a community and take care of each other. When we were all living near the military base in Germany, it was a shared sacrifice experience for the spouses, for the children, all these things. So when I think of that experience of my dad putting me on a bus to go to school and then seeing him six months later with zero communication between that time, I know what that means to have that sacrifice and that shared experience that I wasn't just going through that. All of my classmates were going through that and all of my mom's friends were going through that. Yeah. So we had this shared mentality of having grit and determination. And this is what we do to help each other through these times. And this is just my speculation for me. I don't think a lot of people have had that experience. So if to me, the discussion about, getting worked up or wearing a mask sometimes frustrates me because I'm like, have you experienced community sacrifice before? Probably not. If that's, if this bothers you that much, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good point too. I think you can apply it to the country as well is uh, we need some sort of shared common unifying set of values. Yes. We all agree on uh, to, I think, bring ourselves together as a country and as long as we can agree on those those ideas, like to me, the the liberal principles make the most sense, right? Like freedom of speech, religion, assembly, right. you know, on a press, you know, on and so forth. If we can all agree on that, I think we'll be fine. Um, but yeah, 
some of the times and, and from one, a lot of what I'm seeing of like silencing speech, silencing dissent, and again, on both sides, this happens, that's not very conducive to the the unifying message that you're we're both talking yeah. about. Totally true. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about the vaccine thing, because, again, because I think it's important to note, and it goes along with obesity, but with with anything like that, there's some really crazy research, and crazy I'm meaning that, indicating, and I don't think a lot of people know this, that if you are obese or severely overweight, vaccination does not work as well for you. And your your chances of vaccination working for you are dramatically decreased from a person who is generally healthy. That is an, something that is not being talked about in the public, but that is any vaccination, by the way. So again, just kind of wrapping up that point that it relates to this current virus, you know, and they're talking about, you're not going to get a virus that's 98% effective. You're, they're hoping for generally kind of that 50% to somewhere in that range. But if you are in a compromised position, you're not getting that 50%, no way. It's going to be significantly lowered because of your uh, condition that you're in, and that is something most people. Uh, I want to get that across is that that is that is research that is not current research that's been going back about this, but it's not being reported in the media. Wait, so vaccines shoot for fifty percent efficacy? Yes. Really, I didn't. The know. flu is pretty much fifty percent efficacy for them. I mean, it's not. Uh, even all the health experts that you've seen, they, they will tell you nine, 98% is a joke. That's not happening with coronavirus. They're shooting for 50 60% efficacy for that. And that gets lowered based off of your health condition as well, especially with obesity. There's It significantly is lowered, the odds of it being effective for you. So would that, and just to go back to the studies for a second, because if um, like the Moderna vaccine, for instance, the phase one trial, all 45 of the volunteers uh, had a proper immune response. Yes. You're saying the proper immune response kind of scales differently depending on the person. So like it'll still induce the proper immune response, but it might not be enough to inoculate you from that specific virus or disease. It may not be as, as effective. It may not have as long of immunity for that. But it's like right now they're struggling. One of the things I think people also aren't aware of is that the lack of African-American or Latinx participants in these studies is also going to delay the vaccine because you need to get a, 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 a significant sample of the population that is different from just uh, a white population or whoever. you know. And so that, again, that is a minor news story, but to me, major major. You want that to work for all people, but it's not being covered. I'm telling you. <laughs> really? So, and yeah. the, so the trials, that's something I want to make a note to look into that. Look uh, into it, man. I just saw it and I was like, man, this is not good. And then I was reading about the uh, obesity and uh, compromised conditions affecting vaccination. My wife's a nurse and I was telling her that she's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I was like, there's a level to this that is just, it's being suppressed on some level. It's not sexy. I don't know what it is. Who's pushing it? Not pushing it. But just to think that you're going to get a vaccine and it's going to work the same for Peter or Darian or someone, that's foolish. That's foolish. It needs to be tested on a wide, diverse population. And you need to understand if you are obese, overweight, compromised, deal, it is not going to work the same for you. Man, 
wow, this is like, I'm being educated on this too. So <laughs> I just, I recorded a podcast with a, a guy the other day who we, we were talking about vaccines as well. And he brought up a point that I've, I've literally never heard before. Did you know that the manufacturers of vaccines can literally not be held liable for the vaccines they create? No. There's a, a it's like qualified wow. immunity, essentially, at the, the U.S. government, oh, okay. some sort of law that provides vaccine makers with immunity from prosecution for the vaccines that they create. I had no clue. I mean, that sounds like police qualified immunity to me. Right. Very right. similar. Yeah. Right. And and it's I had never known that before. Right. So it's like if you go and you get a vaccine, and again, it's very low, the chances of, of adverse effects mm-hmm. based on the numbers that I've seen. Right. Again, I'm open to, to looking at different numbers. But if you ended up contracting a disease that you could tie directly back to a vaccine, you couldn't actually sue to recoup damages from it. You're just kind of screwed. You're screwed. Yeah. Oh my, I did not know that. That is, that's mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe not. I don't know. It's kind of like people are going to protect themselves, especially on those levels, you know, like, yeah. Well, I mean, I, the power. I just thought it was interesting because uh, the guy I was, I was speaking with just a super interesting human being, like one of those that you look at and you stereotype them, but his mm. beliefs are just the exact, not the exact opposite, but like <laughs> intelligent, articulate, well thought out, uh, not exactly what you thought they would be at all. And one of his viewpoints, again, not mine, one of his viewpoints was he was against vaccinations, not because he didn't believe the science, but of the point that I just raised, um, that he doesn't trust the big pharma companies, the ones who manufacture and create the vaccines. And I thought it was, again, like I said, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. I just thought it was something interesting that I literally had never heard before. And I'm all about bringing up stuff that I had never heard before. Right. I, I think so. I mean, it's, that's why I was like, I wonder if uh, maybe I'll add this in, you know, about the vaccination. I'm going to send you some articles about it because I think it'd be, because there's this whole field of, uh, it's uh, immunometabolism. I never even heard of it before um, a while back, but they look into things like this and there's, there's, it's very interesting about how overweight and obese populations, um, vaccines can be less effective for those patients. And I just think it's not being, the story is not being told at all. It's like, we're being told this, oh, great. We get this vaccine. You're good. Like, mm, not necessarily, you know, it's people are pinning their hopes on, this making them be better. And listen, having potentially, if if things are good, if there's very, very mild side effects, literally very mild, and it creates a strong immune response, yes, it's probably going to be better than you having walking around having nothing for it there. But it's just, I just think it's important to know that it may not be as effective for said person who has certain issues. And honestly, if you really look at it, that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, like, if you are compromised, if your immune system's compromised, if your body is being taxed tremendously by extra weight that you have on it, it would make sense that the response may be compromised for you. For that. Yeah. Well, and you're ready for an ironic statement. Uh, that to me makes perfect sense because gross generalizations are never accurate. Um, so, so, I mean, to me, it makes a perfect amount of sense that each vaccine, uh, each, per, each person responds to each vaccine in a different manner. Because again, we are all the same, but we're all different. Too. Yes. Um, and yes. one of the things, because I'm gonna have to run here in a couple minutes, but yep. I want to make it, sure we touch on this because this to me, 
uh, goes into what you and I have been talking about around just the the medical industry. And I want to share some good news, um, if that's okay. Um, I got yes, three, please do. I have three uh, three good news stories, and then one of follow up to a question I had on you earlier. But the Perfect. good stories all have to do with these advanced diagnostic uh, blood tests. So, as of July twenty third, a study was published in Nature Communications. Uh, that showed scientists created a blood test that could detect cancer up to four years before symptoms actually appear. Wow. That's one of them. That's Another amazing. One. Isn't that crazy? It's absolutely crazy. But you're ready for this next one. This next one's even a little crazier. So uh, again, as of July 30th, researchers created a new blood test capable of detecting signs of Alzheimer's 20 years before cognitive problems develop due to the disease. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's just two. Here's the third one. And this one's the most recent. Uh, so an international team of researchers, this was a, a study published in Science Translational Medicine. An international team of researchers developed a rapid, affordable, and 100% accurate test for breast cancer. Ooh. That's so we're, amazing. Scientists are rocking and rolling, my man. They are rocking and rolling, and they I am, are. Ro- they I, are. I am very excited about the the eradication or moving towards the eradication of diseases like Ebola. Uh, mm-hmm. HIV cure is just entering pre- preliminary trials. So, as human beings, again, I think we have the capacity for incredible ingenuity and innovation to make our lives just better, um, and I'm excited for that. But the one of the things I did want to go back to. Was uh, remember the question I asked you in 100, 200 years, like what will future society mm-hmm. look like us? So, my answer to that question is a little bit different than yours. I think it would be factory farming. Mm. And the big news for me on that front is this month, uh, US consumers will be able to try cultivated meat. So, it's like lab grown from cells instead yeah. of. Yeah. For the first time ever. So, at two San Francisco Bay Area restaurants, you'll be able to test uh, lab grown pork. So, like, they'll be serving lab grown bacon to like 30 or 50 people. What? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <That's> cool. <laughs> so, you got that. That is amazing. Foods, you got Beyond Meat. And then in three years, so they're saying based on this, within three years, it's not, it's going to be commonplace to see cultivated meat in grocery stores. Oh my gosh. How crazy would that be? Wow. It, but again, like, and this is the balancing hand in hand, right? We don't know if there's any adverse health effects um, from lab versus, you know, animals. But that's something we'll figure out. Um, and I have, you know, full confidence in us. But yeah, it's yeah. just awesome because factory farming and when you learn about it is, is garbage. That's yeah, not garbage, great. man. It's terrible. But, you know, on a good note, like you're saying, big shout out to Daily Aloha. If anybody's not using it, it's amazing. I think I got it off the donut, honestly. Yep, it's one of our yeah. partners. Yeah. Huge shout out to Daily Aloha. I use it every single day. It's a great way to start off your day. Positivity, positivity, man. I got my wife into it. She's getting a bunch of her friends. I'm going to send everybody. Actually, some of the best apps I've gotten are from the donut. There's like just good people stuff. And so that's the jets that now that's awesome i'll have to pass it along to amy too and i'll have to put you in contact with amy because she'd be somebody super interesting uh i think for you to talk to just based on is her she the creator of it or is she like yeah so she's the the founder of it and she's the one that that we've been partnering with uh and yeah i mean daily law is freaking awesome man it's part of my Peter, hook me up man i need to talk to amy man <laughs> gotcha. gotcha so i'll be on the lookout for uh the 
the vaccine stuff that you'll send me, and then I'll send you yeah. uh, Amy's contact info so you guys can connect. And you got you want I know you got to run, but you have real quick time to announce the things you guys have going on, the the awesome things you're doing, real quick. Yes, Darian, I have time for you, no matter what. Um, so, Come on, man. Come so on. right now we have one product. It's a daily email newsletter. It's kind of like an all-in-one, uh, your general news digest. We're going to be changing things up a little bit. We'll be redesigning and streamlining the daily donut and spinning off two additional newsletter products. One of them will be just positive news. We're calling it the positive donut. All right, so start your day essentially with a smile every day, just positive news stories straight to your inbox, a reminder that the world is you know, a great place to live still, even with everything going on. And then the other one, I think you'll really dig this actually, Darian, uh, futuristic donut. So that'll be oh. about... <laughs> So that's the space stuff, that's the tech innovations, that's the uh, medical breakthroughs, like the ones we just went over, and just other odds and ends that are shaping the future of our world. Um, so to get- I need that now, Peter. I need it. <laughs> well, and here's another one, too. So those are our two newsletter products, two additional ones we're rolling out. We're also going to be rolling out a daily text message uh, called the Hot Button, and that'll just be the news you need to know in 60 seconds or less delivered with- Oh, Donut panache, uh, one thing to brighten your day, get you excited about the future, and get you informed on what's going on in the world. So, that's oh my gosh, you just pumped me up. Did you say you're doing an app also, or, or no? No, that's that's down the road. That's on our roadmap. Okay. Um, and I wish we could do it sooner, but you know, resource constraints and fun okay, stuff. So it's uh, one thing at well, a time. I'm very proud of what you're doing. I mean, Peter, for everybody in the audience, you know. My podcast. I love speaking to all the people, but you know, Peter's a regular on the show. Every two months, we're giving you the news, opinions, speculation, but a lot of hardcore information. Uh, Peter's a friend of mine, and uh, I think you got to sign up for the donut. Every episode, I do the little ad about the donut because I believe in it. I only put out stuff I believe in. I believe in the donut, and I'm about to go hard on the science on on the technology stuff that comes my way, man. <laughs> Oh, dude, here's, here's another one. I'll, I'll drop another little something for you that we haven't talked about publicly yet. But uh, we have a space miniseries podcast coming out. Oh, my gosh. You're killing me, man. And so we're uh, we're going to be going into the history of NASA and the space program all the way up to present day in the commercial oh. space industry and where it's going. And you'll geek out over this, man. So one of the interviews we did was with a, a billionaire. His name's Gregory Olson. So this guy paid $20 million to the Russians because that's where you had to actually go to be launched into space, um, which is why what SpaceX is doing is so awesome. It's actually US-based space launches. But he paid the Russians $20 million to train with their cosmonauts for five months and then put himself into space to go to the ISS. Uh, So not only do we have that guy interviewed, we have a NASA astrophysicist who's like the PR lead um, for NASA and also the James Webb Telescope uh, to a science fiction writer, Jeffrey Landis, who worked on the Mars rovers and ended up turning into a science fiction writer, uh, writing about the colonization of Mars and other uh, planets. So, oh my so we're talking to all those people and more and doing a nice little You're mini- killing me. I love the James Webb Telescope. I'm literally all, I know so much about that thing, man. Oh. Well, we got the we got the lead uh, on the James Webb Telescope on an interview, so we'll have you're to killing me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for all you're doing, Peter. I know your time is limited, but 
Thank you for the time. And I know um, it's going to be awesome for our audience. Thank you so much. No, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. And then uh, if you guys are looking for us too, uh, in addition to, to what Darian's putting out there, find us at thedonut.co. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Uh, we'll be pushing through the changes I mentioned uh, by the end of the month is our tentative launch date. And yeah, go check us out. Uh, fact-based and partial news with a twinge of hope and positivity. So thank you again, man. It's been a pleasure connecting with you. I love these chats. Of course. Same here, man. We will be in touch. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. How about we heat things up tonight? Mm, how so? Get a little fresh. Add some steam, sizzle, and spice. <laughs> Wait. You're talking about going to Outback again, aren't you? Fire things up at Outback Steakhouse. For a limited time, try our Bloomin' Fried Shrimp or get fresh with our new strawberry salad. Go big with our bone-in ribeye or the filet and grilled shrimp on the barbie. Then cool off with a cucumber crush or peanut koala. Try them all before they're gone. Let's Outback. The Camp Monsters podcast from REI Co-op Studios is back with a new season telling the tales of terrifying encounters with mysterious beasts of America. Hear about the creatures that wander the woods and lurk in the water, the ones that fly through the air or even prowl around a backyard like yours. We search the country for camp monsters. All you have to do is search for camp monsters from REI Co-op Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.